Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, the conversation of the day for people clipping coupons. Kathy Jones joins us, pianist and chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab. Kathy, I'm going to cut to the chase. The Bloomberg Corporate Total Return Index is down 8.6%. And I'm going to guess I've given up two and a half years of coupon enjoying the price decline in, in corporate bonds. And there's the full faith and credit story as well. The great dynamics here, and folks, this is Tuesday Dynamics on Bloomberg Surveillance with Kathy Jones. The great dynamic here, Kathy, is with the rising coupon, it's okay to step in and buy even with further price erosion because now I've got a decent coupon. Are we there yet? Yeah, I think we're getting there. So we have uh, recently pivoted towards uh, adding more duration to portfolios and to um, being pretty outspoken about income investors finding income and things like investment-grade corporate bonds, preferred securities, uh, even high yield if you're willing to take some of the risk. We prefer the upper end of high yield uh, rather than the lower end. But all things considered, we think a lot's been priced in in this market. And uh, we do see growth slowing down in the second half of the year a bit. And we, you know, we had a brutal first quarter so uh, in fixed income. So we think now's the time to step in and, and capture some of that income. I mean, you're going to capture a coupon. What's a decent corporate coupon right now? What's the yield I can well, expect? I think on the index, it's around 3.6 plus. So you can be in, uh, you know, in some, depending on where you want to be in investment grade, you can be three and a half up to four, perhaps. Um, and, you know, preferred, you're looking at five or six. So these are pretty decent if you expect, as we do, that inflation will trend lower yeah. later in the year. Those, those, those yields are going to look pretty attractive. I mean, on a price basis, Lisa, I'm looking at a very famous American name with a 12-year piece of paper, a, a coupon of one and three-eighths is the yield, and you've enjoyed a price move from 116 down to 97. You've taken out 16% of price to enjoy your higher yield. I love that you do your bond shopping online while we're uh, uh, talking Pim on Pim Fox live. gave <laughs> me his blue. I've got my blue S&P book from Pim, Bo Pim Fox on my desk so I can look up my Boise Cascade bond. Okay, well, I'll let you do that. But Kathy, I want to go back to what Francis Donald was saying, and you really touched on that, that you basically are in her camp, that you do think that inflation is going to roll over, that there is a transitory nature to this that was prolonged by the uh, pandemic tr moving to the crisis, and that that was really what was going on with the conflict-driven uh, inflation that we're seeing. Do you also think the Fed will not be able to raise rates nearly as much as people are pricing in before they get concerned about growth concerns? Yeah, you know, we've been in that camp all along, or I guess I should say I've been in that camp all along. I'm not sure everybody on my team agrees with me, but um, I think that, you know, the Fed now has to come out guns blazing, declaring that they're going to conquer inflation because that's their job. And I'm sure they mean it, but when push comes to shove and we get 
to lower inflation and slower growth and rolling over in some of the sectors of the economy that are particularly interest rate sensitive, uh, will they really be able to follow through on that? Will they actually need to follow through on that or can they slow down the pace? Then you add in QT, which I think is being underestimated as a factor here. And um, you've got a lot of tightening in liquidity coming into the market just in the last couple of months and maybe over the course of the next couple of months. So we get to the end of the year, I think the picture's going to look a, a lot different and the Fed will be able to slow down a bit. Just quickly here, Kathy, we were talking to Frances about how th she thinks we're getting close to the peak that we're going to see in 10-year yields. A pretty bold call when you've got the likes of Credit Suisse coming out on the opposite side, saying we could see 2.8% on the 10-year because of the same thing that you just mentioned, quantitative tightening. Where do you fall on this? Yeah, I don't think quantitative tightening is negative for the long end. Um, I, I don't see that supply weighing on the long end. Most of it at the short end of the curve. They've got some MBS, and we don't know, you know what they're going to do with that yet, but um, that's probably a lot shorter duration than it looks like on the Fed balance sheet. So I don't see QT weighing so much on the long end of the curve. And if you go back to the last period of QT, uh, we actually saw some curve flattening and yields fall. So I, I think QT is more of a liquidity drain, and that's a, a slowing growth story. And, you know, don't, don't forget, we're getting tightening liquidity and higher rates globally. So that can compound it on top of the war situation where, you know, we really have a lot of uncertainty. So, Kathy, you think that we've seen the peak so far in 10-year yields? Uh, I think we're pretty close to it. So, you know, where our call for this year was around two and a quarter on the 10-year, ending uh, two and a quarter or so on the 10-year. So we think as rates move above that, towards two and a half or above, um, we'll be extending duration. Kathy Jones of Charles Schwab. Kathy, wonderful to catch up with you, as always. Andrew Weiss joins us to, uh, this morning, Vice President at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Andrew, I want to talk about autocracy. From the past, it's Hitler, it's Stalin. Putin has mentioned this. We have Putin. We have a massive win in Hungary with Orban as well. How do we control, manage, or end these outcomes of autocracy as we see in Ukraine? So... It's great to be here with you, Tom. I am always skeptical that the United States has within its power great ability to shift the ultimate political direction of Russia. And as much as what President Putin is doing in Ukraine is horrible, and as much as the world must level whatever tools it has to try to slow down Russia's war in Ukraine, we need to be realistic that regime change in Russia is something that has eluded Western policymakers now throughout Putin's tenure. And every day Vladimir Putin wakes up when he comes into work, he's mostly concerned about the safety and survival of his regime. And he's prepared to escalate and do things to protect himself against that threat. And that's been basically what's been animating him throughout the past two decades. If the people of Russia and the various peoples of Russia find out what's going on, will they give him support or will they walk away from Mr. Putin? We need to be careful about what Russians are willing and aren't willing to accept. And one of my colleagues at the Carnegie Moscow Center wrote about this very powerfully in Russian earlier this week. Russians are living in an information vacuum and for the most part, they are doing that by choice. They are not seeking out the truth. 
They don't believe that their country is responsible for atrocities or war crimes in Ukraine. And if we puncture that information bubble, which is a big if, I'm not sure that people in Russia are prepared to take action to deal with the problem of living in a country that's ruled by Vladimir Putin. And that's just for a very simple reason. The instruments of repression that Vladimir Putin has built up over the past two decades are intimidating. They are prepared to use violence and other measures to keep Russians off the streets and to prevent political dissent from spilling over into questions of how their country is ruled. And you see that level of fear among average people as well as the elite. And so for the West to be banking on either a split within the elite or bottom-up pressure on the regime to take care of our Putin problem, I think is, is really unrealistic. The way we're going to deal with our Putin problem is action by Western leaders. It's not going to come from within Russia itself, unfortunately. Where does China fit into this, Andrew, given the fact that over the weekend and frankly yesterday, the New York Times put out an article talking about propaganda that China has made that actually paints Vladimir Putin in a very nice light for some of the party members? So I think a lot of what China is providing right now is moral support, as you say, in the propaganda sphere in terms of supporting Russia's lies about uh, possible biological weapons and things like that that it claims Ukraine has, all of which is made up whole cloth. But when it comes to the, the ways Russia needs help right now, the main support China is going to be providing is by providing the bid on Russian oil and gas resources, which China buys on, you know, sort of at the moment, uh, it, as much as it wants from Russia. The, the longer term problem for Russia is that China cannot be expected to be the backstop and the fiscal authority for its, its government. And so as Russia comes under increased pressure, from Western sanctions, it's going to be turning to China out of desperation. It's going to be looking to China to be its its savior. I'm so I would be very surprised, particularly in the technological area, which is affected by Western export controls, if Chinese firms are going to be willing to step up and provide inputs to the Russian so, uh, industrial sector that it can't buy now from the West. Andrew. Just to wrap things up, and we only have a little bit of time, what do you think the West could do to bring this to an end more quickly? I think that the West is going to keep ratcheting up sanctions. The problem isn't, is that there isn't a ton of headroom left short of a full-scale embargo on the Russian economy. And so if the West is prepared, for example, to cut off all imports of Russian oil and gas, which I think Germany is not willing to countenance at this point, if the West is not prepared to go to that length, I think the most likely outcome is that this war simply drags on. And over time, it's likely to morph into something similar to the Balkans wars of the 1990s on a much vaster scale. Andrew, we appreciate your time. It's a clinic for all of us. Andrew Weiss there of the Carnegie Endowment. Francis Donald, Global Chief Economist, Manulife Investment. Uh, we're thrilled that she could join us this morning. Francis, I love what you say about Jerome Powell. He's going to be boxed in, and the, to distill your really good paragraphs, you're looking for a steep downturn in manufacturing. Expand on that. 
Every leading indicator we have of PMIs tells us they're heading lower. Frankly, every leading indicator we have of the economy tells us that it's heading sharply lower in the next six months. And that means, as you said earlier, that a lot of the information we have, like Fed minutes or how data was in January or February or March, is really looking stale to me. When I look <clears> forward over what the Fed is facing in the next six to nine months, they're going to have still high inflation, but their mandate focus is going to have to shift back towards the employment side of the picture as growth really softens. And that's why if you're marking to market, sure, Fed looks like it could go eight, nine times this year. If you're looking forward into what the oh, Fed will be facing, much more difficult to see how they're going to be able to hike either as much as they want to or the market has priced it. The anti-Holland horse, do they come out and say one and done if they go 50 beeps or do they play it out, say, into the summer and then go enough? That pivot probably happens closer to the end of Q2 or Q3 because they're going to need cover to do it. You can't make a 180 until the data has changed. I think they may start focusing on how the nature of inflation has shifted. We're moving from COVID inflation to conflict inflation. Oh, That's I a like really that. important oh, inflection poetic. point. It's a different composition of inflation. In my view, it's much more damaging to growth than COVID inflation. Hey, if you didn't want to run in the kitchen or build a pool or buy a used car, well, you just went without. With conflict inflation, we're going to see a lot more demand destruction, even as headline inflation declines. The Fed is going to have to face that full on. Francis, if we clarified the reaction function of this Fed, given the opportunity, given the decision, a toxic one at that, to curtail inflation or save the economy from recession, which one would they choose? Well, Powell has suggested that he's more in the Volcker camp than the save growth camp. I, I think it's really interesting that we've moved from, oh, it's going to be the roaring 20s and it's a reflation trade for years to most shops debating whether it's a technical recession or just a growth slowdown in a period of time. It does appear as if the central bank is willing to sacrifice growth. That's how monetary policy effectively works. And this market telling us it's pricing and cuts over the next few years already suggests that the, the reaction function the Fed has so far told us is that, yeah, it's willing to sacrifice growth in order to calm inflation. I think that makes sense now when inflation is really high and growth feels like it's overheating. It's not going to feel like it makes as much sense in three to six months. Uh, Francis, JP Morgan taking some comfort in the upcoming mechanical peak in inflation. That term mechanical peak. Francis, can you run us through when the base effects start to kick in the other way and when you'd suggest a mechanical peak in inflation would develop? Oh, it's around March or April, but again, I really did take a lot of comfort in that mechanical peak. I've been in the transitory camp, even though it kind of became bad to say that, because COVID inflation was always going to be transitory. But we really have to move away from the mechanical peaks in inflation towards the compositional nature. We've been complacent about the damaging impacts of inflation on growth, because where inflation was coming from was not necessary goods. But this conflict inflation is going to create a much bigger drag on growth, even if it's a lower number. And that's why the Fed is going to have this covered for a pivot later this year. Inflation will look a little bit better on the surface. We're all going to feel it a little bit more in our day-to-day -day lives. Francis, I'm trying to game out four to six months from now, and you think that we're going to start to see the Fed shift stances back to something that seems more concerned about the labor market than simply inflation. How high do you expect the inflation rate to be if we do get those base effects the other way? 
Well, I'll give you an example. Prior to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we had inflation ending at the bottom end of the 2% range at the end of this year. Now it's closer to the 4 to 5% range. But when we do this painful exercise of looking out five years, when we get to 2023 and beyond, our inflation forecast is back to 2%. On March 16th, Chair Powell was asked, how much of this year's inflation do you expect to come down because of your rate hikes? He said the most important thing he said in months, well, we actually can't combat this year's inflation. We're trying to target the next few years. The next few years are not the problem for inflation. Inflation is a problem in 2022, and there's very little the Fed can do about it. Francis, the reason why transitory became a dirty word is because the Fed got it wrong. The Fed got inflation wrong on many levels in terms of what their policy was. This is the accusation in a lot of academic and, frankly, market circles. Where does the credibility come from for the Federal Reserve for them to make that pivot at a time when inflation is still 4 to 5 percent? Well, what a challenge, right? And all central banks understand that they could hike rates as much as they want. It's not going to bring down energy prices. And that's why paying attention to long-term inflation expectations is so key, because central banks will continue to try to convince us that they have some control over that. But Lisa, this brings to question a longer-term issue that I think central banks are going to have to face, which is the inflation of the next 10 years looks different than the inflation of the past 10 years. It's going to be focused on deglobalization and ESG trends, much more supply side, much more global than the inflation we've seen, frankly, over the past several decades. So there is going to come into question how much control do central banks have on future inflation, post-COVID inflation, than they did before. Let's hope they can control that long end of the inflation curve. So far, we're still seeing the break-evens inverted. That's good news. Uh, but I suspect we're going to hear a lot more comments about their expanding mandate. That wouldn't surprise me. So, Francis, let's put the other hat on. What's the big market call? <laughs> we are moving more defensively. So uh, I tweeted yesterday, recession or no recession in your outlook, growth is going to slow pretty significantly. And that means moving more defensively as we head into that growth slowdown. I do not believe it is entirely priced right now. And I think, sure, we could see some upside in yields, especially as we see ongoing hawkishness from the Fed. When you look at that 40-year downtrend in that 10-year yield, I'm a believer we can't yet break out of it. That means we're probably near the peak in this rates move. There we go. Francis Donald of Manulife Investment Management with a big call right at the end there. Francis, thank you very much. Into the second quarter, what to do after negative 8% in bond price, after challenges for the equity market with all of this news. Sarah Hunt joins Portfolio Manager with Alpine Woods with a real tangible effort of what do you do with a portfolio? What is the single change you've made April 1st? I'm not sure that we've made any single changes on April 1st. I mean, if you think about the larger economic backdrop, which you were just discussing with commodities and everything else, you've had years of history where the OECD countries have basically said, we're not going to do a lot. We're going to try to move some of this stuff like mining and oil production outside of these areas. And now this is coming back to be a real problem when you start to have geopolitical problems like we're seeing right now with, with Russia and Ukraine, which is just horrible. And countries now trying to figure out what do I do now that I've outsourced all of my energy production and some of the other production to other places. We had already been moving in the direction of realizing that the Fed was raising rates and getting to more stable things in the portfolio, higher cash flows, better balance sheets, things of that nature. So it's not a huge change right now, but it is looking at how do we take advantage of what we think is coming in the future. And unfortunately, I don't see energy prices coming down that quickly. I don't see food prices coming down that quickly. And I think that's going to be a real problem globally. And it's going to be a problem ultimately for equities as well. Well, let's talk about where that problem is concentrated and what you're pulling back from, Sarah. Can you be more specific? 
Well, so we added some energy towards the beginning of the year because it was clear that even before the Russia-Ukraine situation, the fact that there has been a pullback in investment in the hydrocarbon space because people are looking for newer ways to produce energy has meant that you've seen an underinvestment. And as prices were starting to go up, it started to look like that could be something that was going to continue. And the Russian-Ukraine situation just exacerbated that. So we added some energy in the beginning of the year. There's also places where on the technology side, you saw some stocks come down quite dramatically in the, in the last couple of months. So we looked at some of those large franchises like Adobe that we didn't have representation in, and we put some money to work there as well. What do you make of the move in the home builders year to date? It's been pretty brutal. Sarah, we talk about the economic data in America. We're told it's great, but the forward look, given rising interest rates, the home builders have been hammered. Well, I think that, I mean, we'll see how that actually plays out, but similar to some of the technology stocks getting hit very early in the year on the back of the potential of rising interest rates, um, I think that part of the problem with housing is that that playbook says that when rates go up, housing comes down. But you've had such underinvestment and there's such a demand for for housing, especially on the lower end. And the unintended consequences of the great financial crisis making single family housing and investment class has also taken the ability of people to buy those single family houses out of the market. So I think the demand is there. The question is going to be what happens with pricing, materials, labor, all those costs are going higher. What's the best hedge right now, Sarah, if there is this feeling that we are heading into a slowdown? Is it on the margins certain U.S. equities? Well, I think that we go back to the fact that, once again, the U.S. equity market tends to be the strongest when things are weakest globally. And I think that the U.S. economy, even with the challenges that it's seeing, is not seeing the problems that you're seeing in some of the emerging markets. You do have debt issues in the United States, but it's not going to be as bad as dollar-denominated debt that's coming in other places. So I think U.S. equity markets are a decent place to hedge. It's just a challenge, you know, when you look at the rest of the globe. It's not so much how great the U.S. is, it's how much more of a challenge the rest of the globe is facing right now. What are you doing with cash right now? Are you hoarding it or are you actually deploying it? Well, I, I am a believer that cash does have a place in portfolio management. Not a huge amount of cash, but we are on the margins higher on our cash positions than we have been just because we think that there's more volatility. And if you want to be able to take advantage of that volatility, you'd like to have some cash sitting around because the drawdowns, we've seen some drops that happened very quickly and then rebounded very quickly. And it's very difficult in those moments to try to sell something that's down to buy something else that's down. So we have some cash on the portfolios right now and probably a little higher than normal. Sarah, a lot of good studies on how out of vogue equities are. Liz Ann Saunders just out with a great chart on Twitter on that. What is the level of unlovedness of equities right now? And what do you do with that knowledge? Well, it, it's a relative game because there's equity participation is, does not go across the board. I mean, if you look at some of the problems that the U.S. is having right now, a lot of people do not participate in the stock market. And I think that fixed income, which has come down so much, is starting to get a little bit more of a bid here because rates have gone up. But the concern that the Fed is going to keep hiking makes the bond market seem as volatile as the stock market. So I think if you look back at what's happened over the last six months and not the last couple of years, because I'd argue coming out of COVID, you're not going to expect those kind of equity returns again. But I think that you've got some real decent growth in the equity market, even if it's not going to be the stellar growth that you've seen in the last couple of years. I think you've at least got some ways to participate in companies that can grow. And I think that's going to end up being important, especially given a backdrop in fixed income, which is going to be, I think, more volatile. Sarah Hunt of Alpine Woods Capital Investors. Thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.